church believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Key point number two, the early Christians had a foundational belief in praying together. The early Christian, Christians had a foundational belief in praying together. Let's pick back up verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, that's the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Well, we've been there before, right? You know where the upper room is. This is where they, they had uh, Passover together. And then he says, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with Jesus' brothers. You know, the disciples gathered here in the upper room. As I said, this is, this is the same room where they had the Passover together, where they instituted the Lord's Supper. And it's here in this passage we see that Jesus' brothers, his, his earthly brothers, his younger brothers, are now counted among the believers. How incredible is that? Maybe you didn't know that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Uh, he did. Obviously, Jesus was the firstborn. She was a virgin. That makes him the oldest. Uh, then all the others uh, came later. And, uh, but we find their names in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, we find some of the names of, we find the names of his brothers, none of the names of his sisters are mentioned, but listen to this in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, this is uh, Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Is this not the carpenter's son? That's a reference to Joseph. Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? Are they not all with us? So here we have what? We have a list of the four brothers of Jesus. How incredible is that right there in Scripture? All four of them mentioned there. Probably, very likely, mentioned in order of age after Jesus. So Jesus would be the oldest. Then you have James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And then it says, and his sisters, plural, so he had at least two sisters. We just don't know what their names were, right? But Jesus had two sisters. He had four brothers. You might even put it this way. You might, you might call them half-brothers, half right? Half-sisters. Why? Because their earthly father uh, is going to be Joseph. Jesus doesn't have an earthly father. Uh, he was born of the Spirit. So James, consider this, the half-brother of Jesus, the one who's mentioned in Matthew 13, James is there. James is there in the upper room. Joseph, his brother. Simon, his brother. Judas, his brother. Those four brothers, all mentioned right there. Mary, the, his mom. All right there. James, the, the half-brother of Jesus, is the same James, by the way, who's going to write the book of James. So he's going to write that book that we're going to read about later. He's the same James who's going to be the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. Luke mentioned every single disciple by name. Did you notice that? 
every single one of them. This is where we have a complete list of, of the 11 disciples that are remaining. And he mentions them by name. He mentioned that Jesus' earthly family was present. So you have all the, 12, all the 11 disciples. You have Jesus' earthly family. Now, why is that important? Why is that important? I want you to get a sense of the humility that's in this room. I want you to get a sense of what's taking place here. Because there's a couple of things that could have happened. John could have boasted in this setting. John could have said, I was the only one of you who stayed at the cross. He could have started bragging about that in this moment. He said, all these arguments we've had on who's the greatest, I stuck around. And he could have made a case, hey, I'm the, I'm the greatest. I stayed right there. He even appointed me and said for me to be in charge of taking care of his mom. James, James, the brother of Jesus, he could have said, I'm related to him. He's my brother. He's my older brother. Hey, Mary, Mary could have spoken up. She could have said, hey, I gave birth to him. I am, I am his mother. I nurtured him. I raised him. But none of that happened. Why? I think it's humility. They all could have done it. And in fact, there was not too long ago, the disciples, every time they got together, it was hard to find humility. And now, there's a reason for them to share all these accolades that they have done, or maybe even to point out why they're the greatest. But their attitude seems to have changed from who is the greatest to these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Did you hear that? We didn't hear that. That was not the descriptor of the disciples early on, was it? This is the transition moment. This is the moment where those disciples stopped with all that arguing of who's the greatest. And the Bible says this new phrase about the disciples. They all continued with one accord. That's a huge transition. You think about how many times this year, since working through the book of Luke, how many times you've heard me say, there it is again. There they are arguing again. Who's the greatest? There it is again. There it is again. There it is again. From this point forward, we, we don't see it anymore. Why? This is the transition point. This moment in the upper room, something changed. They saw the resurrected Christ. They knew things were different. And the new phrase that's going to describe the, the disciples is no longer going to be one of who's the greatest and arguing and bickering among them and trying to make their case on why they should be in charge of certain things. No, instead, the new phrase that we're going to see over and over and over again concerning the followers of Jesus throughout the book of Acts is the phrase they continued together in one accord. That's a transition. That's life change. That's something different. That is a huge transition for the disciples. The room was full of followers. And each person, they could have made their case. They could have made their case against someone else and pointed out the faults of others. But they humbled themselves. And then because they humbled themselves, they found themselves in one accord in prayer. And we'll see it over and over and over. So how can we do that? Right? I mean, how, how do we get there? 
How can we be described as a people who are going to continue together in one accord? How can that be a descriptor of Grace Point Church? How can that be a descriptor of who we are as a people? Well, let me focus for a moment on, on this idea of the, the mission and the prayer of our, of our church. We call our church Grace Point, and we define it this way. Uh, we use a, a phrase, you may, you may see it on a website, you may see it on a banner. It says, Grace Point, where the gospel meets life. Now, what do we mean by that? A grace point, a point is where two things merge, two things come together. And we say in our, in our phrase, where the gospel meets life. Well, what is the gospel? The gospel is the great commission. And what is life? Life is all about the great commandment. So, where the great commission, the great commission is to go into all the world, right? Making disciples, the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. Where those two things come together, where those things come together and create a point, that is a grace point. That is where the great commission, the great commandment come together. We as a church want to make sure that we never lose sight of the great commission, that we never lose sight of the great commandment. So how do, we, how do we do that? Well, we have to create a culture of prayer. Because if you think about it, what was it? They continued with one another in one accord in what? Prayer and supplication. Prayer and supplication. Now, supplication, we don't use that word a whole lot. What does it mean? It just means that they, they, they took into consideration one another's prayers. They were praying on behalf of someone else. They were all praying. I want you to hear me on this. The way that you create a culture of prayer is that everyone prays. Everyone prays. At least to some degree, uh, everyone is praying. I want you to notice it wasn't just the disciples. It wasn't just Peter. It wasn't just James. It wasn't just one individual. It, was, it wasn't even just the men. It was all of them. All of them. It said they were all in one accord, and they all did what? They were all praying in supplication with one another. They were all doing it. Imagine with me just for a moment a vision of Grace Point Church where we continually see pockets of prayer. A church where you don't just see pockets of people, but you see pockets of prayer. You see that taking place. As we work through the book of Acts, you're going to see tons of pockets of prayer. Consider these. Believers who prayed for Peter when he was in prison. Believers who prayed for Paul and Barnabas as they were about to be sent on a mission trip. Non-believers, such as Lydia, who listened to the prayers of believers, and her own heart was opened to the Lord. Believers who prayed and prison doors were opened in Philippi. There are somewhere around 30 pockets of prayer found throughout the 28 chapters of Acts. You can hardly turn the page without reading that they were in one accord and in prayer and supplication for one another. 
each time you turn the page, you can almost see over and over and over again. Let me tell you about a very meaningful pocket of prayer. Several months ago, I was driving for Lyft. Uh, I had to pick up someone at Aldi's uh, right here in Mooresville. And the name shows up, and the name uh, looks like I'm heading to pick up somebody named Elaine. And I'm looking at it, and I'm going, Elaine? I remember Elaine from church. And I remember CJ works at Aldi's. And I was sitting there, I was thinking, maybe Elaine is, uh, you just speculate, you're always wondering, 90% of the time you're wrong on who you're going to pick up, it's never someone you, you know. And I pulled up, Elaine was not standing on the curb, CJ was, CJ was standing outside Aldi's. We got to, uh, picked up CJ, and I had a conversation, we were talking uh, about lots of different things on his, on his way to, back to his house. And let me tell you what C.J. said. C.J. said these words to me. He said, do you mind if I pray for you, Pastor? Do you mind if I pray for you, Pastor? That's a, that's a pocket of prayer. That's a culture of prayer. Let me tell you why that stands out. In decades of ministry, I couldn't tell you the number of times that I've encountered people, talked with them, ran into them in public, and had these words said to me, Pastor, would you pray for me? And I said, absolutely, and I'll pray for them, and I'll pray for them, right there. and I will do that gladly. But rarely, rarely do I meet someone that I know out in public, we're about to part ways, and that person says to me, can I pray for you? CJ, thanks. You ministered to me more on that day than you know you did. That's a pocket of prayer. That is, that is, that is a culture of prayer. And you were an incredible encouragement to me. A few weeks ago, we had just stopped putting everything into the storage building after worship. I came back into the gym. I looked around. <laughs> there were... There were some weeks that I can remember where we would put everything away and walk in, and it was me and Cheryl, and maybe, maybe, maybe Peggy, and we're going, well, <laughs> maybe, maybe somebody will show up next week. And we'd, we would head our way and pray. But this particular week, a few weeks ago, I walked back into the gym, and I looked around, and, and I literally, I saw pockets of people everywhere. I saw some standing over here, some over there, some are over here, some are back in the back, some are back where Cheryl's at. And I was looking around and I'm going, wow, wow. Lord, help me to turn these pockets of people into pockets of prayer. Can we, can we, can we create a culture for the glory of God? Let me tell you what I saw last night. I saw the pockets of prayer unprompted. I, I mean, we, we typically gather, we pray, uh, we did our prayer time, we did, we did some prayer walks, but we very easily could have just, you know, just done our thing and prayed together and, and walked out. But there was something unique. There was something unique about our gathering together and, and setting up and praying with one another. And, and I couldn't tell you how many pockets of prayer that I've witnessed over the course of last evening. 
watching one again and again and again and again. We were even on our way, on our way out, and Lori's like, hey, I want to pray for you guys before you go. And she's praying over me and Cheryl and praying for us. And, and, and I moved, I get in the car with Cheryl, and I said, it's incredible to see God affirm a culture of prayer is developing prior to the sermon on developing a culture of prayer. I'm sitting here and I'm telling Cheryl, I was like, I just witnessed tomorrow's sermon in advance. The only one that could do that is God. I, I literally, I'm like, because if it had come after the sermon, then you might do what? It was us. I, I prompted you, uh, and, and, and now listen to me, I want to cultivate a culture of prayer. I really do. But God said, don't leave me out of the equation. I'm already at work doing what you're trying to do. You're just catching up. He's already at work doing it. How incredible is that? You know, several years ago, I served in a church in Huntersville. I was there for 13 years. I was their lead youth pastor. We were probably the largest student ministry in the area, had a sizable budget. Uh, here's some lessons that I learned along the way. Uh, Burtdale Village was opening up, and the Lord taught me this lesson. I'm never going to have a budget big enough to compete with the things of the world. It was starting to frustrate me. I was like, ah, you know, we had this big event scheduled, and now all the teenagers are going and hanging out at Burtdale Village, the new thing. They're going to the new movie theater, and they're going, they're seeing all this stuff. And the Lord said, listen, your budget's never going to be big enough to compete with Hollywood's movies. Your budget's never going to, and I, and I had a good budget. So you're never going to be able to compete with those budgets. You can't compete with the budgets of the entertainment industry. You can't compete with Disney. The Lord made it really strong in my heart that the best thing I can do is just simply offer the teenagers of our community something that those people can't, the gospel. They can't compete with that. They may have big budgets, they may have the Hollywood budgets, but we have the gospel. Church, do you know what we can offer this community? Listen to me. A church that continues in one accord and in prayer, I believe that we could set ourselves apart in this community as being a church that's known for pockets of prayer. Can you imagine? Can you imagine when people visit our church and they say, you know, I mean, I've, been, I've been visited churches with bigger budgets and bigger programs and bigger, but I tell you what, when I walked in there, I saw people of prayer. That could set us apart. That can make us different. That can make us share the thing that we can and, and will make a difference in our community.